what I like to do when I'm looking at a, a verse is I try and bring as many uh, old theologians into the room. Uh, many of them are dead. So the best way to do that is to get their writings. Uh, even those who are living, they're more accessible if you just get what they've written about the subject or the verse. And I put them into a room and I try and listen to an audio clip of theirs to, so that I can imagine their voice, how they speak, their tones, their sentences, how they put it together. So as I'm reading, I can imagine they're speaking to us. And most of the time in the room, these old figures, uh, theological figures, say the same thing, um, but different ways. And they see different gems, but they all agree and they all kind of are encouraged by one another. Every now and then, one of them says something that makes the others gasp. Uh, but they forgive his foible and move on quickly and graciously. But there's one kind of subject that we get around that causes chaos in the room. Kind of insecurity shows itself, head scratching, fumbling with words shows itself, kind of trying to put words around things, but it doesn't really make sense. And they can't seem to agree in the room or they can't seem to say uh, the same thing the same way. And this, these verses are a case in point uh, of that kind of thing where you've got these great, great uh, godly people um, trying to uh, explain the text but not sounding too smart when they do so um, or not agreeing with one another as they do so. So I thought if my brain had to break trying to figure this out, then so does yours and we're going to have to do it together. Um, and so hopefully we can get there. Um, First of all, I'm going to show you a very childlike sketch I did this morning as I try and find my notes. Um, while Josh was leading worship, I thought it might be a helpful way to just show you. And I'm going to come and stand closer for a few seconds uh, so that you can see this. Uh, there's these kind of tests. And in test one, we're going to see is a, a test of salvation. Uh, the question is, is our faith, is our belief in Jesus? That's test one. Test two is a different set of tests. It's a test of fellowship. It asks the question, uh, if we're fellowshipping with God, we, we know that we're fellowshipping with God. If, if we're being obedient to God and if we, we, if we are obeying God, we will bear fruit that is like Jesus. So essentially what the two tests, if you had them, what they would answer, they would say, believe in Jesus, then become like Jesus. That's the Christian life. Believe in Jesus, then become like Jesus. But as you see, when we go look at these verses, some theologians and some of us also can read them as if they tests of salvation. But I want to try to show us that John is not writing this uh, thinking of this area, but he's writing it thinking of this area. Uh, he's talking to Christians, assuming they already believe in Jesus. Now he's talking about Christians becoming like Jesus. He's talking about obedience and fruitfulness. He's not wondering about salvation, I think, and we're going to see this in a moment. So hopefully you can pictorially keep that in mind and we can move along. Let me read to us verse uh, 3 to 6. And today is going to be a bit more teachy, but I think it's, as I wrestled with even the teachy nature of the morning, I felt like, uh, I just, I guess my prayer, I can't even say that God reassured me. I'd have to say I prayed that God would, that there'd be some who really need to make justification by faith concrete uh, in your life. Um, that there'd be some who would benefit from really trying to land these deep truths and that you would leave today with a real freedom that Jesus is enough. Um, so let's see how we go. John says, uh, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, that does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, 
In Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Alright, so those are our verses. And uh, we're going to see... Let me, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I'm going to interact with them. Put these theologians in my room. They're teaching me about these verses. And we look at that first verse and it says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. And I say to these, uh, many of them dead gentlemen and and ladies, uh, you've studied these verses and you know far more about it than I do. Can you please teach me? What is it saying? What does it mean? Expound it into my life. Uh, One of them, and I'm just quoting literally what he said. um, They read it as a sign of salvation. They said, put simply, example A says, put simply, The one who knows the true God walks like Christ. So while personal holiness is not the basis of our salvation, it is the clearest assurance of our salvation. Now alarm bells should be going off. That obedience is the clearest assurance of our salvation. Therefore, if someone is walking in a disobedient way, they should have no assurance of their salvation. Therefore, we can see that what they're saying is this assurance of salvation is based on their works, their behavior. Your behavior is the assurance of your salvation, the clearest assurance of your salvation. So I interact with him and I say, Sir, just one more time, how can I have assurance that I'm saved? And they say to me, Your personal holiness, Mark, is the clearest assurance of your salvation. And so I say to them, Does that mean I'm more assured than a Christian who is less holy or less assured than a Christian who is more holy? And you see the problem with that, that all of a sudden we have a rating system of who has more assurance of their salvation because it's based on our personal holiness. Second example wrote this, the disobedient person who professes to be a Christian is a liar because such claims are blatantly contradicted by his behavior. How can the truth of God be in such a person? For truly to know God is to love God. And truly to love him is to, be obe- to obey him. So you see how they're still thinking in the first test. They're thinking about salvation. The person who professes to be a Christian is a liar. So what are they lying about? They're lying about being a Christian. They're not a Christian. Uh, and what does this person base it on? Because, uh, they have the, 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 because such claims are blatantly contradicted by their behavior. Their behavior contradicts their uh, their statement or profession of faith, therefore they are no longer Christian. So what should this person, so I ask this person this, this is a conversation I had with him. Uh, because they say, how do you know? For truly, to know God is to love Him. It's that simple. If you know God, you love Him. And if you love Him, you obey Him. It's, it's that simple. Now, as a parent of four children, I wished love and obedience was that simple, but I've learned that it's not. So I ask this very godly person, Sir, did you ever love your parents? And they say, Yes, very much. And I say, Sir, did you ever disobey your parents? And they say, Yes, sometimes. And then I say, Sir, is it possible to disobey a parent you love and still remain their child? And they say, Of course. To which I say, Then is Father God idealistic, perfectionistic, or just less gracious than your own parents? Case made. Our adoption into God's family cannot be based on our behavior, on what it looks like from the outside. Uh, And what they're saying is very wrong. And if you can't see that, 
you need to think about it a little bit more and go over it. It's clear that these verses cannot be about uh, salvation because if they are, they lead us to believe that you can test, I can test mine and you can test your salvation by our behavior, how, how we act, how we live. So I want to show you three things here quickly in regards to this to help set our minds and our hearts at ease. Uh, I can see a few of you. I'm just going to check, quick check. Are you tracking? Thumbs up if you're tracking. Don't thumbs up if you're completely confused and I'm just speaking to myself at the moment. Th okay, thumbs up. A few, few thumbs up, a few nothings. So most of us are tracking. Some of us are still confused. Uh, it's okay. I told you I broke my brain trying to get her, figure these verses out and argue with uh, some godly theologians. I might just add there were other godly theologians on my side. So you should be very careful if you stand alone on theology. Um, number one, this is the first point I want to make. The basis of salvation is always only belief in Jesus. It's always only belief in Jesus. Let me show you three verses. First, first of all, if you want to tour with me, go to John, John 11. Not one John, proper John, Gospel of John. John 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, John 11, ver chapter 11, uh, sorry, verse 25, from verse 25, we're going to read about Martha, and uh, I'll take it up a little, take it before a little bit from verse 24. Martha said to him, that's Jesus, I know that he will rise as her brother Lazarus. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of, the, of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. This is the moment where Martha professes her belief in Jesus. She hasn't changed necessarily. She's not behaving a certain way necessarily. She's mourning her brother's death. Still, look what happens over this profound moment. She stands face to face confesses, professes her belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent to take away the sins of the world, to be her Savior. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, Jesus wants to speak to you. It was a very normal, ordinary uh, experience. Her belief, her heart was settled in Jesus. She was still trying to figure out uh, how to live out her belief. And that was enough. Jesus and Martha didn't um, Jesus didn't say, well, let's just wait and see if you really believe. I'll see how you behave. There was enough for him. Her, she professed her faith in Jesus. It was enough for her. No wait and see. Turn with me to Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 16. Acts 16 verse 30 um, says this. Uh, this is, uh, Paul is in prison and uh, the jailer comes. There's this commotion. The jailer comes. Um, to him and from verse 30 says uh, 29 and the jailer called for the lights and rushed in trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas then he brought them out and said sirs what must I do to be saved what's what's the what's the test what's the way how, how do I become saved and they said to him uh, sorry I've got to find it believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household I mean that's even Paul goes beyond this. He's like, this isn't even a message for you only. Take me to your home, which he does. I'll tell them the same thing. And you can all be saved. The way for everyone to come to saving faith is belief in the Lord Jesus. 
And that night the jailer became saved, him and his whole household, and they got immediately baptized. There was no wait and see. Let's hold out. Let's see how you live your life. Let's see how your behavior matches up to your profession of faith. Once we've decided that it's true, then we'll baptize you. Um, they, they got straight onto it. Romans, turn with me lastly to Romans 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 10 uh, from verse 9. I'll take it from verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you profess with your mouth or confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart that God, um, God raised him from the dead, Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. How is someone justified? With the belief of the heart, with belief that is here in Jesus Christ. Um, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. How is someone justified and saved? With the belief of the heart and the profession of the mouth, simply stating what you believe in your heart, someone is saved. And then it says in verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him shall, will not be put to shame. Uh, so everyone who believes in Jesus and behaves a certain way will not be put to shame? No. Everyone who believes in Jesus and proves through love of God and obedience to his commands will not be shamed? No. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is enough. Uh, belief in Jesus is always all it takes to save someone. The only test of salvation is, is their faith in Jesus? Uh, have they professed that with their mouth? Um, that's how we can hear what their faith is. That's how someone gets saved. Jesus, uh, always only belief in Jesus. The second point is that the assurance of our salvation is based always and only on Jesus is enough. So first of all, the basis of our salvation is belief in Jesus. That's the foundation of our, our, our faith. But secondly, the assurance of our salvation is based always and only on Jesus is enough. Look at these great verses. Romans 10 verse 11 says, as I said to you, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. Paul couldn't say it more blatantly than that. If your faith is in Jesus, you will not be put to shame. Your, your faith will prove to be what you needed to be saved. Um, you, and then read with me Luke. This is my, I've been dying to get to the scripture all week. Uh, been trying to get it in already this morning, but I've tried to be patient. And here we are at the moment. So excited to share it. Luke 23 verse from verse 39. Um, so Jesus is being crucified. There's an inscription of his head, King of the Jews. On the, either side of him, he has two criminals who are being crucified as well. Uh, and they deservedly and him undeservedly. And we pick up the story. One of the criminals who were hanged ra rallied at him, mocked him, had a go at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, to, and, and he said Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What is the assurance of this man's salvation? Hanging on the cross, dying because of the things, for the things that he has done. His assurance is Jesus saying, 
today you will be with me in paradise. He, this is why I've been looking forward to getting here because John can't possibly be writing what some say he is writing because then the prisoner would have no chance. The prisoner had no time to show through his behavior to, uh, that he had changed. He had no time to show love for God. He had no time to show obedience. He had no time to show fruit, uh, to show Christ-likeness. The only assurance of his salvation was Jesus is enough. Jesus saying, today you will be with me in paradise. And what was enough for the, the, the criminal on the cross is enough for you. You and I have nothing more to boast about than the criminal hanging on the cross who had to hang on the words of Jesus for life. Uh, that's what we've all got. We're also all hanging on the words of Jesus. Jesus saying, uh, you will be with me is, has to be enough for all of us. And so uh, obedience, love, fruit cannot possibly be a, um, a basis of assurance. Uh, Jesus has to be enough and only Jesus can be enough. And then number three, anything else will leave us pri- proud and self-righteous. Any, any, anything else that gives us assurance of our salvation will intrinsically leave us proud. Listen to what Paul says is impossible. That's impossible because look at Ephesians 2. You all know this is one of my favorite texts in the whole world. Probably because I needed it for most of my life. I um, need it now, but I was on the wrong side of this text for most of my life. For by grace, Mark, say your own name, for by grace, uh, who can I see? Julian, Anna, Mary, Carl, uh, for by grace, Jordan, I think I'm looking at Sam or Adam, Kirsty. for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Mark, you did nothing. It's a gift of God, not a result of any works. Not before you were saved, not when you got saved, not after you got saved. Never were your works part of you being saved. So that no one may boast. It's not even a true, it's not even just a true fact. It's not even just, well, this is just true. It's a true fact with an intention. God God saved us that way for a reason. What was the reason? So that no one may boast, that we may have no reason. What's the opposite of boasting? The opposite of boasting is being insecure. And you can read that into the so that no one may be insecure, so that no one may be arrogant, so that no one may be filled with pride, either of boasting or insecurity, thinking, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not a, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not good with God. Maybe I need to do more. Or the person who boasts thinks less or, you know, looks down on others. The person who's insecure looks up to everyone else. Uh, and God, the, Paul says, it's impossible. We are saved by grace. It's a gift of God. There is no, no one can boast about anything. And then he says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he, addre- he goes straight there. But you know what? You are saved to walk in a certain way with God and, and we should walk that way. There, there is goodness to come from your life. There is purpose that you're made for and, and we should get there. But that's not got anything to do with your salvation. And so point number three, anything else will leave us proud and self-righteous and will give us a form of religion. So let me just pause there. If you are proud of anything, if you are proud of uh, your prayer life, if you are proud of the way you study the Bible, if you are proud of the power of God in your life, if you are p- proud of how often you come to church, if you are proud of how many people you, you witness to, if you are proud of the sins you didn't commit this week, uh, and those are forming a basis of your salvation, you're feeling kind of like uh, stronger or better than 
brothers and sisters, then you, you've fallen from the basis of salvation. You're not standing on Christ the solid rock. You're standing on self-righteousness. You're standing on works righteousness. You're standing on your own rock. And your own rock is sinking sand. And it's no good. And you know what? God in His grace, even as we sink through the sand of our self-righteousness, we know where we land up again by His grace? On Christ the solid rock. Because God never lets us relocate ourselves from Him, even if we forget and start being proud of other ways of living. Um, so that's our... Uh, it's important for us to see that um, what John can't possibly be saying, so we can try and see what John is saying. Um, if you have believed that, if you have believed in Christ, you can be sure that you have believed. That, that's the story of Martha. If you've, if you've, your faith, if your heart's faith is in Jesus, if you believe He is who He said He was, if you believe He achieved what He said He did, if you've professed that, confessed that with your mouth, made it public, then you, as much as Martha, can know that you can be saved. Well, what should you do? Should you throw a big party? Should you go? Ah, well, you can. But you can also just be like Martha and go back and say, Hey, sister, Jesus wants to speak to you and go back into the kitchen and start making lunch. It doesn't have to be fanfare to prove that your faith is in Jesus. There also can be. Because it's obvious for some people that if they are saved, they would burst with joy. And others who are saved might just sit and reflect. And others who are saved might go back to work and go, Thank God for that. Uh, there's no right response, um, but we are saved. This, if you know that you've believed, you know that you've believed. Many will try and cause you to doubt that you've believed enough or believed uh, true enough or right enough. This is just simply the grace of God. Um, our belief is enough. It's all. We cannot do anything uh, to it. That's it. And so it leaves us humbly confident. Humble because Jesus had to die for us and there's no way that we can save ourselves. So, so we're just humble because our sins meant that much to God that it did cost Jesus His life. You did, I did cost Jesus His life. And we cannot ever repay Him. We are in a humble position, but we can be confident because God did love us. Jesus did achieve it. It is finished. And if our faith is in Jesus, we are saved. And so we walk every day with a sense of humble confidence, no boasting, no insecurity. We don't look at our behaviors to give us assurance of anything. Um, now we move on to the next point, except that my notes won't allow me to move on to the next point. So I'll just uh, move on by myself. So John says this. Let's go back to what he says. He goes, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's <laughs> so number one. John is not saying that you've come to know Him in salvation. He's talking about fellowship. How do you know that you have fellowship with God? You know that you have fellowship with God through obedience that follows. Think about a family because uh, John's talking about a father. He's talking about God our Father. Think about how that works out in a family. Um, as we, I'm sitting down having dinner with my family, we have fellowship with each other and we finish having dinner and afterwards, I say, come on, let's pack up. I'll wash the dishes. You dry, you pack away, you clean the table. And everyone does so. They, they all respond in obedience. But they're not thinking in the moment, uh, this is obedience. It's not a black and whiteness uh, to it. It's a relational tone to it. It's, yeah, we've all sat down. We've all eaten. Let's all participate. And we still continue in fellowship through this obedience. And they are obedient. They may not like it necessarily. Uh, they may even go, oh, why me again? 
But it, it, or they may just go, yeah, that's totally fine. And they get up and they help out. They obey. Why? It's through fellowship. John is saying, if you have fellowship with God, there is a natural desire or a natural willingness to obey the commands of God. He's not saying if you are saved. He's saying if you are in fellowship with God. Those who are, who are saying we are having special fellowship with God. Remember the Gnostics who have this like superior knowledge and trying to get people out of the church. And kind of, we have this unique experience of God, this real thing. And John says, you know, anyone who says that they're having a real experience of God, uh, their life will be marked by obedience to God's love commands. That's what you'll see. They'll, they'll walk with the Father in a way that honors the Father. It, it will be a natural outcome of their life. It's a way of testing, as I said. What, are, what is test number two? Test number two is a test of fellowship. I don't know if you've seen this backwards or right, but fellowship, not salvation. So obedience is a test of fellowship. Are we walking together with God? Um, but then John says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, that I know him is talking about a fellowship knowledge. I know God. I have a special experience. For those of you who haven't had an experience of God, and then you hear people who have had an experience of God, uh, we mustn't overplay that. Um, I stand as someone who's in between. those. I've had... Uh, real experiences of God I can't explain uh, that, I, that I'd have to just say are supernatural but even in those moments I would have to admit they are not changing my character in any way shape or form they uh, are not the thing it's a thing but they are not something to be pursued to be chased after it's it's not and those who have no experience I I, I can empathize with that too where there's days it just feel like where is God is he is he hiding? Uh, he doesn't. He, he seems silent. He doesn't seem warm or near. This just feels like kind of rote. Get up and just go through the motions. Um, Paul uh, John saying, you know, if we know God, he says, uh, oh, sorry, <coughs> know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. But listen to what the commandments look like. What, what is the opposite of that? But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. The love of God is perfected means this. It means that at the moment of salvation, God's love for you was perfect. But you haven't fully, I haven't fully understood it, received it. We, are, we received it enough to know that God loves us. It was a big statement. But in our inability and in our limitations and our flesh, we don't have a perfect understanding of his love for us. But as we walk out in fellowship with Him and obedience with Him, His love for us is perfected. It becomes more understood. It becomes more experienced. It becomes more settled in our hearts. You should, 10 years after you got saved, you should be more amazed by God's love for you because your understanding of His love has deepened and widened and gotten bigger. The one thing that you will never fully understand is how much God loves you or how God loves you. Um, and that is a con continued revelation, or as John says, God's love in you is perfected. It achieves its goal. It comes to completion. How? Through obedience. Not through uh, radical supernatural experiences or not through the lack of them. We're on even ground, regardless of your, your tangible felt experiences. We're on equal ground, whoever you are, in terms of experiencing the love of God, understanding the love of God. What does it come through? As we fellowship with God, as we obey God, as we interact with God, we begin to understand His love more. Think of a child walking with a father, 
doesn't understand the father, limited capacity to get the father. But as they walk with their dad, the years go by, they, they hang close to dad, they obey dad, and they start to realize who dad is, why dad does certain things, why dads ask for certain things, and they begin to appreciate their father or mother more as they mature, not less. Uh, they, in other words, their, their understanding of their parents' love is increasing. Well, how much more? If that's our parents who are just human, my, my appreciation for my parents today and their love is, is far more than when I was a child. You take it for granted. You assume they love you. Of course they love you. I'm fantastic. Why wouldn't they? I'm their child. They have to. But as you grow up, you realize there were often times where they decided to love you, where they gave up things because they love you, where they put you before themselves in love for you, where you were a, a douchebag, where I was a douchebag, but they were gracious and merciful and applied love to my life. Uh, and I see that the older I get. Well, they are limited. They're just, they're just humans. They're just two humans trying to work it out. My dad was raised by boarding school, so he didn't even have an example. He had to figure it out for himself. So there's, there's human limitations as he figures out what does it mean to be a father first generation. Well, how much more the love of God who's perfect, who's unlimited, who's completely, naturally supernatural, who's perfect in every way. As we fellowship with Him, His love for our understanding of His love gets perfected in us. Through what? Through obedience. Not supernatural experiences, not lack thereof. But as we, be, as we can kind of look back in the past and see God's way in our lives, as we've walked with Him and obeyed Him and started to understand Him better, uh, His love is made perfect in our lives. So, if you want to know God's love more fully, the ways through walking, fellowship with God and obedience to Him, you will begin to understand Him more, understand His love more, and His love will be more perfected in your and my life. And then John says, final statement uh, for today. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. And John now is talking about fruit. If you are uh, walking with God, um, you know, in the other text we read, we, we found out that His Word is in us. His Word abides in us. The, the gospel is meant to remain in our hearts. And now John's talking about us abiding in Him. If we are fellowshipping with Him, if we are walking in obedient love with Him, uh, it's going to have a natural result. There's going to be fruit. And John uses that word um, that, that we're going to bear this fruit. But fruit takes time. That's why it's a terrible idea to think of looking at someone's life and saying, uh, I don't see the changes that there should be. Therefore, I'm not sure if they're a Christian. And so you see the, the point of fruit is that it happens, number one, naturally. As you abide in, as you fellowship with something, the, Jesus, who's, who we are abiding in, as we're walking with Him and fellowshipping with Him, as we're obeying God's commandments. Now, now bear in mind, God's commandments are love commandments. What are, the t what are the commandments summed up? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And love others as you love yourselves. The, every commandment of God is a love commandment. That's why the result of obedience is that you start to understand love. It's like love, uh, obeying God. It's like it creates an environment of love. You're saturated in it, surrounded by it, and you begin to understand it. And God's love is perfected in you. It changes you. And then you begin to bear fruit because you've been abiding in Christ, fellowshipping with God. And now His love is demonstrated through fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. A professor taught me once that 
It's not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. What does love look like? Patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. If you want to grow those things, how do you do it? You fellowship with God. You obey His commands, which are loving commands. As you walk with Him and obey Him, you begin to see uh, what love actually is. You have a revelation of it in your heart. You begin to understand it better. And as you understand it better, there's a natural work that happens in your heart. Your behaviors are changed. Love begins to overflow in your life in fruits. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. How do we do this? We do this through the same means that Jesus used. We have the same resources that Jesus has. We fellowship with our Father. We seek Him out. We go into fellowship with the Father. We have the Holy Spirit and we are led by the Holy Spirit. He guides us and leads us in truth. Um, and every single day that we walk with the Holy Spirit, we can get better at hearing Him and understanding Him. Uh, and we desire to do the Father's will. Um, we have the same resources that we tap into as Jesus. We put our faith in the Father. We follow the Holy Spirit. And we seek to do God's will. And what happens? Well, the same thing, the same fruit that unfolded from Jesus' life begins to unfold in ours because we start to resemble Jesus.